Daniel chapter 9. This morning we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 19. Verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have com committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. 
O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now And, Lord, so often when we pray, we fail to appreciate just how truly awesome it is that we are praying to you. We fail to see how awesome you are to whom we pray and what a privilege it is to be able to lay before you our supplications, to be able to gather in your name and to be able to read your word. Father, I pray that this morning you would allow this awareness of your awesomeness to dawn on us. As we turn our attention to your word, may you, through your word, affect us and and transform us by the renewing of our minds. Use this time this morning in your word, Lord, to, to capture our attention and to help us see how Amazing you are, Lord. For truly, your word says that whatever we do, we should do it for the glory of God. Let this time be for your glory, Lord. And may you minister to us through your word so that we can return praise and thanks to you, Lord. In a way that isn't formal and isn't just routine. Father, we, we thank you for this time and we commit it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come now this morning in our series in Daniel to Daniel chapter 9. And for Christians, Daniel chapter 9 is one of the coolest and one of the most famous chapters in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9. Now, do you know why that is? Why Daniel 9 is such a cool and famous chapter for us Christians in the Old Testament? Anyone know? It's because this chapter contains one of the clearest chronological prophecies of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a shocking prophecy, isn't it? I hope most of you are familiar with it. I hope all of you are familiar with it. But in Daniel chapter 9, we have a clear chronological prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ, where God literally predicts the time that the Messiah would come and the events that would even surround his coming. And so as Christians, we love this. It's cool. It's exciting. It's famous. It's powerful. And I am fascinated by this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and I'm excited to explore it in in the week to come. However, the fact that we Christians get excited about the chronology of this prophecy and we largely miss the main point of the entire chapter really shows how shallow we can be. 
you know, because we can miss what the whole chapter 9 is about. And we can just get focused on, look, it predicts the time that Jesus will come. And I, and I agree that's fascinating, and I agree that's exciting, and I agree it's powerful. But that prophecy is not just a chronology. There's more to this chapter than just, look, G God prophesied that Jesus would come at the time that he came. But that prophecy, which does tell when the Messiah is going to come, is part of a larger chapter that is theological in nature. There's far more to this chapter than this amazing prophecy. This chapter 9 is probably one of the most theologically important chapters in the Old Testament, and it's certainly the most theologically important chapter in the book of Daniel. And we miss that if all we see in chapter 9 is a chronological prophecy. We're missing the theological importance of this chapter. Chapter 9 has been called the backbone of Daniel. It's like the spine of the book of Daniel. If the book of Daniel were a skeleton, it's like the spine. And all the other chapters are connected to chapter 9 like ribs. Each individual one is coming out of chapter 9. If we miss the meaning of chapter 9, we miss the meaning of the book of Daniel. This chapter provides us what I would call the theological fiber of the book, what the book is made of, or the theological rebar. You know, when they pour concrete, they have to shape the concrete with all these, with all these steel bars, and the concrete is formed around that shape. And this chapter provides the theological rebar, rebar excuse me, upon which all the rest of the details and the visions and the histories are formed. It gives us the covenantal background of the book of Daniel. All that has happened in Daniel, all that Daniel says that has happened, all that Daniel says will happen is on the framework of the theological back, uh, backing here in chapter 9. And this theological backing, as I said, is the covenantal background that is essential to understand the book of Daniel. You can't understand the visions without it. And as we've been looking at the visions before we got to chapter 9, when we looked at chapter 2, when we looked at chapter 7 and chapter 8, I've sort of been touching on that covenantal background. I've been talking about how these visions are not just predicting arbitrary events that are going to take place in the future, but to really understand those visions, you have to have an understanding of the covenantal background behind those visions. And so we can't understand Daniel without understanding the theological import of chapter 9. And since, of course, Israel is a picture or a type of our own salvation, and what happens to them is a picture of what happens to us, this background helps us understand our own lives as well, our own relationship with God as well. As you can see, chapter 9 is a lengthy prayer for the most part. It contains a lengthy prayer. And this famous prophecy is the answer to this prayer that we just read, and it can't be understood apart from it. This prayer of Daniel in chapter 9 is essential, brothers and sisters. And so let me just ask you, when you have read the book of Daniel in the past, and when you have read chapter 9 in the past, when you have read this cool prophecy in chapter 9 in the past, have you in your own mind understood its connection with the prayer of Daniel in this chapter? We're going to divide this chapter into two Sundays, 
This morning we're going to look at the prayer. We're going to discuss the occasion for the prayer, the content of the prayer, and then we're going to close by reflecting on what makes a true confession before God. And we can take that and apply it to ourselves as well. Next week, we're going to look at the outcome of the prayer. We're going to study this wonderful prophecy that's given in response. So let's look at these things, the occasion of the prayer, the content of the prayer, and a reflection on what makes a true confession. So first of all, the occasion for the prayer. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So, once again, these initial opening details of the chapter are important to the entire chapter and they provide us the context for the chapter. The year is 539 BC. That's when Babylon was conquered by the Persians. And you'll remember in chapter 5, we actually had that story when Belshazzar was overrun and it says Darius the Mede took the kingdom. In chapter 6, we're introduced to what happened not long after that when Darius the Mede was in power in Babylon. And, uh, you know, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. That involved Daniel and Darius the Mede. So we're dealing with the same Darius here in chapter 9 that we saw in chapter 5 and chapter 6. In the year that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon. Now, what's the significance of this year? Why does Daniel pray so intensely at this time? Why is he given this vision in this year? The significance of this year is illustrated to us in verse 2. Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. And from his reading in Jeremiah, he realized that it was time, or just about time, for Israel to be brought back to the land, as God said. And let's look at those passages that Daniel would have himself been reading. And there's two. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25, you only have to go back uh, three books, although it only seems like two books because Lamentations is really small. So Jeremiah 25 and verse 11 and 12. And so Daniel is reading this. Jeremiah was a contemporary with Daniel, actually. They lived at the same time, when, except Daniel was a young man when Jeremiah was an old man, but they, they overlapped in their lives. So, Jeremiah 25, verse 11. And here's what God says through Jeremiah. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So here God says, Babylon's going to come for 70 years. He's going to be taking over and, and he's going to, you're going to be serving him. But after 70 years, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and Babylon. And if you turn to Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah says this essentially again. Jeremiah 29 verse 10. 
Daniel would have been reading this with great interest at that time because now we're looking back but Daniel was actually in the time of the exile longing to go home he knew Jeremiah wrote about these things he knew Jeremiah had predicted Babylon was going to conquer them but now he's seeing that Jeremiah also prophesied when Babylon was going to when when the, the exile would be over and so verse 10 for thus says the Lord when 70 years have been completed for Babylon I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. So here's what Daniel is reading. And Daniel is living in the time when Babylon has been conquered by the Persians. So he sees Babylon's been conquered. Daniel can also count his own uh, chronology. He can, he can say, you know, it was about 70 years ago when Babylon came to Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, Jerusalem and uh, ex and, ex and took me away into Babylon. That was about 70 years ago. So Daniel's own life is kind of like a, a, a time indicator. And so Daniel is seeing this, and he sees that it is time. All of this, of course, shows that God is in control, right? That what happened to Israel when the, when the Babylonians took over wasn't happenstance. That God was the one who was in control, and God even determined the amount of time that Israel would be serving the Babylonians and God would be the one who would bring them back. And God even named the man Cyrus to be the tool that he would bring them back by. In a nutshell, God is in control. And this is something that should encourage each and every one of us today, just like it would have encouraged Daniel in his day. I don't know about you guys, but it's encouraging to me to know that God is in control of nations and times and seasons. He is the one who's in control and the world isn't all willy-nilly in what happens. It's very encouraging for us to know that. We also see that Daniel was a student of prophecy. He read the prophets. He took notice of the predictions. He studied them carefully in the scriptures. He took it seriously. He even took it literally. When God said 70 years, he said, hey, that time is up. Daniel believed the prophets and the predictions of the prophets. And so there's an encouragement for all of us as well to be students of the scriptures, students of the prophets, and to take those predictions seriously because as God has kept his word in the past, he's going to keep his word also in the future. Now, what does Daniel do in the light of this? When Daniel sees that it's time, when Daniel sees that it's happened just as God said, 70 years, and then all of a sudden the Babylonians have been conquered, in the light of this, what does Daniel do? Does Daniel go home and pack his bags and sit down and start twiddling his thumbs? Is that what he does? And just kind of sits back and says, hey, this is cool. I can't wait for it to happen. Not that it would be necessarily wrong to pack your bags. That would certainly be a sign of faith that you believe you're going home. But he didn't twiddle his thumbs, did he? And look at verse 3, what he did when he realized that God's word was, in, was actually being fulfilled. In verse 3, it says, So I gave my attention, or in the Hebrew, I set my face with determination to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So you'd think Daniel would be excited and rejoice and be glad, but he actually turns his face to the Lord in prayer, and he takes off his royal clothes, and he puts on basically a potato sack, and he lays in the dirt, and he fasts, and he prays to the Lord his God. 
John Goldengay says this about this. The fact that God has spoken through the prophets does not mean that all the believer does is sit, newspaper in hand, awaiting the outcome. The appropriate response to prophecy is prayer. Harry Ironside comments, We find that the study of prophecy exercised the heart and the conscience of Daniel. He was not merely interested in it from an intellectual standpoint. The mere computing of times and seasons could not satisfy this devout man of God. I think as I was commenting about our shallowness, we tend to read the, the prophecy of Jesus' chronology in chapter 9 and say, hey, cool, it predicts when Jesus was com is coming. And sometimes we're just satisfied with just seeing the chronology in, instead of asking what is the theological meaning of this? What does this coming of Jesus have to do with um, you know, my relationship with God and the issue of sin and, and righteousness? And we kind of miss that that is exactly what that prophecy is about, isn't it? So Daniel wasn't satisfied just to count numbers. Ironside goes on. When he learned that the time had almost drawn near for the people of Judah to be restored to their land, it stirred him to the very depths of his soul and brought him down to his knees. Think about that. He's reading, hey, 70 years. It's over. And he doesn't just say, hey, that's interesting. You can see here that Daniel is stirred to the depths of his souls because He's seeing more than just chronology here. He's seeing something deep in the relationship between God and Israel. Praying in the light of prophecy isn't this arbitrary thing. When Golden Gay says, you know, the right response to prophecy is prayer, that's just not this arbitrary thing. Hey, when you see prophecy, just start praying. For some reason, I don't know why. But it's related. It's us getting involved. And God uses our prayers to do what he's going to do, especially when prophecy is about restoration. So for example, he sees that the prophecy is about God restoring his people to the land of Israel. And for Daniel, that's just not a non-theological issue. That's just not a non-relational thing. That's something big. And Daniel knows restoration is going to require confession. And so Golden Gate goes on to say this, in the prayer then, Daniel is seeking the fulfillment of the prophecy referred to in the narrative opening by offering the response that opens up the possibility of its fulfillment. Interesting. So Daniel sees it's going to happen, and instead of just saying, hey, great, it's going to happen, he knows that confession is what is going to open up the possibility of its fulfillment. The question, of course, is if Daniel didn't pray, would God not fulfill his word? I don't think Daniel was thinking that way. I don't think Daniel was thinking, you know, if I don't pray here, then the prophecy is going to fail. You know, God is going to not be able to do what he said he would do if I don't pray. God's hands are tied by me. This brings us to that issue of the sovereignty of God in prayer and how God uses our prayers in his sovereignty to fulfill his ends. God makes sure of it that there will be people who will pray when the time for prayer is needed. And so Daniel knows this is the time that God is going to return us back to the land. It's time to get on our knees. It's time to pray and confess. And he probably wasn't the only one who was doing this. 
So far, we've seen, Dan we've seen a very calm Daniel. We've seen a very composed Daniel. We've seen a brave Daniel. We've seen a Daniel who's stood upright. This whole book, in the light of all his trials and in the light of all his difficulties, we've seen a very composed man. But in this chapter, here we see what's been going on inside the heart of Daniel all along in this book. Don't just look at Daniel and think, hey, there's a very austere man who doesn't have any feelings. This whole time in exile, Daniel has been concerned about his people and he's been concerned about God's dealings with them and he's longed to go home. And now it's the dam breaks. We see emotion, we see brokenness, we see longing, we see tears, we see a man who's prostrated before God. This was what was in his heart all along. This is how he felt. He fasts. He's in sorrow. He's in gloominess because of his people. And therefore, he prays for them and he beseeches God to restore them to the land like God said that he would. So this is the occasion for the prayer. The time has come and Daniel begins to pray. And now let's look at the content of the prayer. And I'd like to Note, first of all, that his prayer is rife with scriptural quotations and allusions, okay? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, especially the law, the law of Moses, not only though, but especially the law of Moses, you would notice that Daniel's prayer is just chock full of scriptural quotes and allusions. And what we see here is that prayer and scripture go hand in hand. Prayer and scripture go hand in hand. One scholar writes, Daniel's mind was filled with the word of God and this fact is reflected in his prayer. John Calvin wrote, we cannot possibly exercise true confidence in prayer except by resting firmly on God's word. I think that's a true statement, right? How can you get down on your knees and pray with any confidence that God's going to hear you or that you're praying aright if you know nothing about the word of God? right? The best way to pray, brothers and sisters, is biblically. That's the best way to pray. The Bible gives us many occasions to pray. The Bible gives us the content that we should pray. And the Bible gives us the confidence that we are praying rightly and that we will be heard when we pray. And so this is the best way to pray is biblically. So if you ever are at a loss for what to pray, just take your Bible with you down on your knees. You know, open to a psalm or open to a gospel or open to an epistle. Read and, and pray in the light of that. And you can have content and confidence and even an occasion to do that. You don't need to wait for some crisis to hit you before you pray. You can just take your Bible and get down on your knees and start to pray. This is what Daniel was doing. This prayer of Daniel's has a basic structure, and this helps us sort of uh, process the prayer. The prayer is essentially basically divided into two sections. So from verse 4, where the prayer begins, all the way to verse 14, we have the confession of sin. This is essentially what he, he does in the first section of his prayer, is he confesses sin. As we see in verse 20, he confesses the sins of his people and his own sin. And then from verse 15 
to verse 19, Daniel appeals to the mercy of God for God to act. So he confesses his sin and confesses the sins of the people. And then the second half of the prayer, or the second part of the prayer, he appeals to the mercy of God for God to act. That's the basic structure of his prayer. We could also take the first section, the confession of sin, and break that into two, sec- two parts. In the first section of confession, first, from verse 4 to 10, Daniel confesses Israel's sin and God's righteousness, and he contrasts Israel and God, as if they were in a courtroom. God, you're right. Israel, we are wrong. And so in the first In the first part of the confession, it's a confession of Israel's sin and of God's rightness, of God's righteousness. In the second part of the confession, which is verse 11 to 14, it is a confession of the rightness or the justice of the punishment that God has dealt upon Israel. So not only does he confess that we've sinned, not only does he confess that we're wrong and you're right, He also confesses that the punishment that God has dealt upon the people is just. The punishment is right and good. Wallace Emerson says about this prayer, and I agree with him, if ever a prayer showed full appreciation of a sinning people, of a merciful God, of a spiritual and moral cause and effect, And if ever a prayer acknowledged the majesty, the righteousness, and the power of Jehovah, it is this prayer. This is an awesome example of prayer. We do well to learn from it. Look how it begins in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord. Now in the Hebrew, this sounds like this. Ana Adonai. Ana means, oh, Adonai, oh, Lord. We shouldn't pass over this quickly. This alas, or this ana, shows what a big deal this is to Daniel, and many people don't get this. Many people don't have the oh, or the alas, or the ana that Daniel had when he prayed this prayer. It's interesting that this prayer of Daniel is prayed almost verbatim by the Jewish people today in their prayer books. It's one of the most common prayers that they pray today. And if you were to read this in Hebrew to them out of Daniel chapter 9, they might think you're just reading it out of their prayer book. So this is a prayer that's read commonly by the Jewish people. But sadly, when they pray this prayer, they aren't praying it with the understanding and the depth of understanding that Daniel did when he prayed this prayer. The ana of Daniel is missing when this prayer is repeated in some formal or liturgical style. And let's remember that this whole prayer is not a formal liturgical prayer. Daniel didn't put on his nice robes and stood in front of a congregation and prayed this pious prayer, you know. Oh Lord, we pray to you. He is in sackcloth and ashes, and this ana comes from the depths of his heart to the Lord. This is all very meaningful and important. Adonai is how he addresses the Lord. If you remember, the term Adonai speaks of God as the supreme ruler, 
speaks of God's sovereignty, speaks of God as the Lord. We, we do translate it rightly, the Lord. So Adonai is, you are in control, God. You are the Lord of all circumstances. What has happened to us, Israel, is not happenstance. It's happened because of your hand. You are Adonai. You are ruling in the world of men from heaven. And Daniel acknowledges what has happened is because of the Lord. And he also prays to God as the Lord because he knows that God as the Lord is able to change things. He's able to fix things. He's able to restore them. He's able to heal them. And so he prays to Adonai. When we pray, brothers and sisters, we should pray to Adonai as well. We should pray to the Lord. So often when we say, oh Lord, the word Lord has almost no meaning. We say it kind of as a name, like we'd say John or James, and it doesn't have much meaning. But let's remember that when we pray, we're praying to the one who's in control, the one who can change things. Look how he refers to God in the next part of the prayer. Alas, O Lord, he calls him the great and the awesome God. That is, you are not a God to be messed with. The word awesome means in the Hebrew fearful, frightening, scary. That's what God, that's what God is. God is an awesome, fearful God, not to be messed with, not to be treated lightly. He is great. He's unlike any of us. None of us can be called great or even fearful. I mean, we get afraid at people and we think they're great, but compared to God, there is none who are great. There's none that scares him. He is fearful, he is great, and he's the only one. No one can withstand God. And so Daniel acknowledges in the light of the circumstances that has happened to Israel that God is indeed great and God is indeed not to be messed with for he is fearful and he has done what he said he would do. Remember Mount Sinai when God shows up? Scared the living daylights out of them all, including Moses. Including Moses. Because God is scary. God is other, God is different, and God is holy, and God is righteous, and we are not. And in the, in the light of a God like that, we have much to be afraid of. However, no sooner does he call God awesome that he speaks of God's love and of God's faithfulness here, doesn't he? So there's definitely a balance here, and we need to maintain this balance in our own lives, and I fear that we don't often do that. But God is both great and awesome, and he is also a compassionate, faithful, and loving God, right? And often we tend to just go to one or the other. We, we, we capitalize on his love and his faithfulness and his compassion and we forget that he is indeed a fearful and awesome God. Or we do the opposite. We see that him as a fearful and opposite, awesome God and we forget that he's love and gracious. But both of these things are true about God. And we don't know God rightly and we don't pray to God rightly and we don't approach God rightly if we don't hold both of these things about him. Daniel says that he keeps his covenant. Who keeps his covenant now, this is something we're not used to, are we? This is something that we're not used to as human beings. We aren't used to someone keeping their promise or their word or their covenant. 
it's, it's a very rare thing to find someone who's going to keep their word. And we tend to think that under certain circumstances, any human being would break their word. And so we're not used to someone who keeps the covenant. But, brothers and sisters, God is not to be measured by what we are used to. Right? And that's a great error that we often do. God is not to be measured by what we are used to. God is not like what we are used to. So think of all your experiences with humankind, and while they are reflections and shadows of what God is, let's remember that God is not like a man. And one of the ways he's not like a man is that he keeps his covenant. And when God says he's going to do something, and when God promises he's going to do something, there is no way that's ever not going to be done because he keeps his word. And I think we just tend to think, well, I know he said it, but he'll let it go. Right? I know he said it, but maybe he just forgot about this one. Maybe it'll slip under the bridge. You know, maybe it will, you know, maybe it can just, yeah, he said it, I acknowledge that, but maybe there's a loophole. There is no loophole. God keeps his covenant. Now, strangely, it says here, he keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps his commandments. And we might ask, hold on a second, what do you mean he keeps his covenant only for those who love him and keep his commandments? Didn't, doesn't God keep all of his covenants that he makes? Doesn't he make promises that are unconditional? And, and so regardless of how we behave, he's going to be true to his covenant. We, we, we would misunderstand this verse if we thought that all of God's covenants are conditional upon our obedience and we would fail to see that what Daniel is specifically referring to when he says he keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love and keep his commandments, he is specifically referring to the covenant that God made at Mount Sinai with the people. In fact, the way that he phrases it, um, who love him and keep their commandments, that's actually a verbatim quote out of the law of Moses, right out of, if you remember, the Ten Commandments. God is a jealous God who who uh, keeps his love and his kindness to those who love him and keep his commandments under the thousandth generation, but he's also the God who will punish and afflict those to the fourth generation, right? So this, what Daniel's referring to, is specifically the Sinaitic covenant, which, which goes like this. If you obey, God will bless you. If you disobey, God will curse you. We could modify this, verse 4, to this. God keeps his covenant and wrath to those who disobey. So you have to take who keeps his covenant and loving kindness. Those are one thing. Daniel is simply acknowledging that, God, you keep the covenant that you made. Your blessing and your love and your loving kindness and, and your prosperity, that falls upon those who obey and keep the commandments. God, you keep your covenant and wrath for those who disobey and don't obey your commandments. In both cases, God keeps his covenant that he made the question is, in what way will he keep his covenant with you? Will it be in kindness and blessing, or will it be in wrath and condemnation? This depends on obedience at Mount Sinai. But the bottom line is God is a God who always keeps his covenant. And so what is the implication here in verse 4 and 5? God, you're a God who keeps your covenant and loving kindness to those who obey. Which means... Since that didn't happen to us, verse 5, we have sinned. Since you bless the obedient Lord, the only implication here is that we 
have sinned. It's not that we've done right and you've broken your covenant and sent the Babylonians against us. We've done wrong and you've sent the Babylonians against us because we have sinned. This is why we are not blessed but cursed. Look at how Daniel says in verse 5, we have sinned. That he identifies himself with Israel. He doesn't say, Lord, they have sinned, right? They, Israel, have sinned. And that's why they, Israel, are in captivity right now and I have to be here with them because they have sinned. <laughs> He's there in Babylon. He's in exile and he says, we have sinned. Here you are in a fallen world, right? Here you are in a fallen world and we all die and we all suffer and bad things happen and it's not the world that God originally intended. And are we going to sit back and say, they, Adam and Eve, have sinned, right? Those people out there are sinning. That's why I'm here in this fallen world and that's why things aren't working out for me because of them. That's not right, is it? The correct response would be, the reason why we're in this cursed world is because we have sinned. And Daniel maintains all throughout this prayer, not they, but we, all throughout the prayer. As I mentioned in verse 20, as I was speaking, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. He identifies with them. And this is how you know that Daniel is a righteous man. Because you want to know what makes the righteous righteous? It's because they see themselves in solidarity with the unrighteous, ironically. The righteous see themselves and identify themselves in a sense, because there's another sense in which you know that you're righteous and not unrighteous. But the righteous don't stand apart from the unrighteous and say, it's us and it's them. The only difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is Jesus Christ. That's the only difference. And so it's not they have sinned over there, they're so bad over here, I'm over here, they're over there, they're bad and unrighteous, I'm good and I'm righteous. The righteous are indeed righteous, they're justified through Christ, they're justified through faith, but they know that in and of themselves they're unrighteous, right? They know that they're not different than the people over there. The only thing that makes them different is Christ, not them right? It's Christ that makes me the difference with those unrighteous people. We're all, we are unrighteous. I'm only righteous because of Christ. And that's how you know a righteous person, because he identifies with the unrighteous. Isn't that interesting? So when you find someone who says, oh, I'm righteous, and what they mean is, I'm different than the unrighteous. I'm glad I'm not like other men. I'm glad that I'm a good person and they're not a good person. I'm glad I behave good and they don't, you know. You know that person's not righteous. Because the righteous, like Daniel's example here, says, we. I, brothers and sisters, am righteous through Jesus Christ. I know that I am not unrighteous before God. But I can still say, the reason why this world is a cursed place is because of me, right? We have sinned. And I don't stand apart from sinners. Until we can pray like Daniel, until we pray like Daniel, we really haven't understood what it means to be righteous. 
in verse 5 and 6, Daniel gives us a catalog of what Israel has done. And the terms that he uses here are all instructive on showing us the nature of sin. First of all, he says, we have sinned. And the Hebrew word for sin is chata. We have sinned. The word chata means we have missed the mark. We have missed the mark. The word is actually used in the book of Judges. If you remember those Benjamites, left-handed Benjamites who could sling a stone really well. Do you remember those guys in, in the book of Judges, um, chapter 20, verse 16? There's a group of men in, ben, in the tribe of Benjamin who are left-handed, and they're really good with a sling, okay? And, it, and this is how good they are. It says that these guys, I think there might be maybe two or three hundred of them, they can throw a stone with a sling and they will not chata. That's what it says. They will not miss the mark. When they want to hit something, they hit it. And what Daniel confesses here, it's interesting, this is what the word sin is, chata, missing the mark. We have missed the mark that we needed to hit. God has set before us the commandments. God has set before us what is right and we haven't hit it. We missed The next word he uses, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity. The word in the Hebrew is ava, and it means perversity or twisting of what is straight. So here's another way to think about sin. Sin is not only missing the mark, sin is also a twisting or a perverting of what is right or straight. And the word righteousness in the Hebrew, and actually the word righteousness in many languages, carries with it the idea of, of straightness. And unrighteousness or iniquity is something that's crooked. It's not what it should be. So not only did we miss the mark, we have not done what we should have done, what is right, what is correct. We have been perverse and we have twisted the good. This is what sin also is all about twisting what is good. The next word he uses when he says we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. The word is rashad. It just means wicked. So it's a good translation or badly. We have been bad. So not, we, We've missed the mark. We've twisted what is good. We have been bad. We have been bad. We have rebelled. Good translation for the English, for the Hebrew word into English. We have been bad, we have rebelled, we have turned aside or turned away from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants and the prophets who have spoke in your name to the kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. So lest you think we missed the mark because we just weren't very good and we were really trying to hit it, but we, but we just couldn't. Or lest you think we twisted by mistake. We have missed the mark and, and twisted what is right because we are bad and rebellious, and stubborn. This is the nature of sin. And I would like to ask us, haven't we all done that? How many of you have missed the mark and twisted what is straight and not done the right thing? And how many of you know that the reason you did that isn't because you were really given it your all to hit that mark and to do what's straight, but because you were bad and rebellious and you turned aside and you didn't listen, right? 
This is what sin is. And the Bible says, for all have sinned. For none fear God. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned away to our own way. All of us have done this. And therefore, what do we all deserve? A blessing or a curse? We all deserve the curse. This is the nature of sin, and what we rightly deserve is the curse. In verse 7 and 8, uh, Daniel says, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. You are right in all that you've done. You've never sinned. You've never done wrong. But to us, open shame. It belongs to us, open shame, as it is this day. Open shame, in verse 8, belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. You are right. You have nothing to be ashamed of, God. We are wrong. If you were to try us in a courtroom, you'd win, we'd lose. And what we deserve here is open shame. And every person in hell will confess this. Everyone in hell will confess. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But to us, as it is this day, belongs open public shame. God is in the right and we are in the wrong. Public shame is what Israel did receive. And public shame is what all people will receive when judgment comes to this world. And it's going to come. God will be shown to be righteous in all that he has ever done. Sobering thought. In verse 9 and 10, however, Daniel acknowledges that God is compassionate and forgiving for we have rebelled against him. Basically what he's saying here is, God, you are still forgiving and compassionate because we haven't been destroyed. We have sinned against you and yet here we are, still here, still able to come before you, still able to lay out our petition before you. We still have hope with you because you are a compassionate and a forgiving God. So we see in the first section of the confession, Daniel has acknowledged Israel's sin, the nature of it, and that they have no excuse, and God's righteousness in all that he has done in keeping his covenant. And in the next section here, from verse 11 to 14, Daniel confesses next the rightness of the punishment that Israel has received. In verse 11 to 14, Daniel's saying, just as God said he would, he did. Just as he said he would, he did. He really meant it. We can go to the law of Moses, we can read it verse by verse, line by line in the law of Moses, exactly in detail what would happen to us, even down to the, to the, the nitty-gritty things that came upon us, and it all happened. He meant it. As we read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, if you remember when we were in that chapter, I said that that verse really is uh, the controlling verse of the book. It says that God gave, ne uh, God gave Israel into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. That's how the book begins, the book of Daniel. And that, that truth and all that it contains guides the rest of this book, right? It wasn't happenstance that Nebuchadnezzar took Israel. We read Daniel 1, verse 1 and 2, in the covenantal context. Even though it doesn't say it there, that because they violated the covenant, he gave them into, it's implied. We must read it with that context. And it doesn't say how horrible those days were, but they were truly horrendous. 
The siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar lasted about two years. And during that time, the famine was so bad. People were so hungry that even delicate people, people that would never hurt a fly, people that were kind and gentle, think of someone like that maybe that you know, they ate their own offspring so they could survive, as God said they would. That's how horrible that time was. The city and the temple was utterly destroyed, leveled to the ground, and the people were exiled from that land. No other nation was so judged because no other nation was in a covenant with God, and so they deserved more for their sins. And God brought upon a unique judgment for a unique people. And it was not the last unique judgment that Israel would experience either, right? What Israel experienced at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar was not the last unique judgment that Israel has experienced over the years because they are the nation of God's covenant. And so as God said he would do, God did. Daniel confesses in these verses 11 to 14 that it was right for what God it was right for God to do that to Israel. They weren't punished disproportionately. It was a fitting judgment. That's something that people resist. Israel itself resisted. God, you've been too hard on us. We don't deserve this. But the punishment fits the crime and God doesn't go overboard in what he does. And God simply wants Israel to admit the truth of this. You have sinned. You have been perverse. You have violated the covenant. I told you what I would do originally. You agreed to it. And I did it to the letter and no more. And I have been right. And this has been deserved. God wants all people to admit the justice of his punishments. One thing many people complain about today is the idea of hell, right? And they say it's not fair that God would send people to hell. That's too tough. That's too strong of a punishment. We don't deserve that. Give me purgatory for 15 years. But don't give me hell for eternity, right? And as long as they're doing that, they're behaving just like Israel, who's resisting and pushing back and basically pointing the finger at God and saying he's unjust, even though in truth we are the ones who are unjust, and all God does is right. The punishment fits the crime. Perhaps you haven't considered the seriousness of your sin. Have you considered the seriousness of your sin? And I would suggest that most people have not. And even us Christians who admit we're sinners sometimes fail to, to really grasp the seriousness of our own sin. But God, who knows just what sin is, fixes the punishment to what it should be. And look at what is provided for us to atone for our sin. Not the death of a, of a lamb or a bull or a goat, but the death of the only begotten Son of God. Clearly we haven't considered the seriousness of sin. Look at verse uh, 13. In this, the last thing that is said in verse 13 we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by this, by turning from our perversity or iniquity or twisting and giving attention to your truth. And that's really one and the same thing. That to be perverse and to twist what is right 
is to not give attention to the truth. And to give attention to the truth is to make what is twisted straight. And this is what true repentance is all about, or a true change of mind is all about. You've sinned. You've blown it. I've punished you. You've done wrong. I've always been right. My word stands thus. You haven't listened to it. You've ignored it. You've been perverse in your ways. Stop being perverse in your ways and listen and give attention simply to the truth. This is what repentance is. This is what Daniel has clearly done for him to make this confession. You give attention to the truth. Verse 15 to the end is the last section of the prayer, the second part of the prayer. And now Daniel appeals to the mercy of God for God to act. Otto Ploger says, only those who know that they are struck down as guilty before God, only they can appeal to the, to the mercy of God. So many people say, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord, have mercy on me. And those same people who say that have not been struck down, have not turned from their perverse way of thinking and given heed and attention to the word of God and to the truth of their sin. And yet they want God to hear them. In verse 15, Daniel is just like Moses when he speaks to God. Daniel reminds God that these are his people that he brought out of Egypt and that his name and his honor is at stake in that people. Just like Moses, exactly what Moses did, right? God, God these are your people. You brought them out of Egypt. Your name is on them. All the nations are watching. Your reputation is at stake in what happens to these people. If you let them perish, you can say goodbye to your reputation. Your reputation perishes. And so he's exactly like Moses. Now God knew, of course, from the beginning that Israel was wicked and bad. God knew this, so he doesn't really need to be reminded, although he wants us to appeal to these things. God did a risky thing by taking Israel out of Egypt and investing his name upon them and putting his reputation upon them. And he knew that they were wicked. And Daniel says in verse 15, as it is this day, you see in verse 15, and you have made a name for yourself as it is this day. That's many long years removed from the Exodus. So maybe one could argue, well, yeah, when Israel came out of Egypt, they had, God had a reputation in that people because it was so immediate, right? When Israel came out of Egypt, Moses could say, God, watch out what you do with Israel because remember, Egypt and everyone else is watching what you're doing. And you might say, yeah, that was, that's true, like right in the immediate proximity of the Exodus. But now Daniel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years removed from the Exodus, he's saying, God, the people you brought out of Egypt and put your name on, to this day, you, your name is bound up with those people. <laughs> to this day, the nations are watching. And I would include I would I would uh, include that to this day also 21st century though thousands of years removed from the Exodus I think if you look at the world and and you pay attention to what the world says and thinks that you'll see that God's name is still bound up in that people and the nations are still watching and God these are your people who you brought out of Egypt that you made a name for yourself, 
the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of the Exodus, as it is to this day. And so he appeals in verse 16 to the righteousness of God. It's interesting that Daniel appeals to the righteousness of God to heal them. Let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your, your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. And in verse 16, he says, O Lord, in accordance with all of your righteous acts. And it's interesting that he appeals to the righteousness of God to heal them. Because we might ask, well, didn't he punish them because of his righteousness? If you're going to appeal to the righteousness of God, then that was why they were punished, and that means they should just stay in punishment, right? But God's righteousness really goes two ways. God's righteousness works to punish sin, but in this case, God's righteousness also works to restore and to heal. And the question is, why? The reason is because of his covenant and his promise. His covenant is not just merely, I'll punish you if you sin. His, his covenant with them is an everlasting covenant to bless them. And so Daniel appeals to the righteousness of God to keep his covenant, not just in punishing, but also in blessing, which includes then, then restoration of these people. In the same way, when we become Christians, we appeal to the righteousness of God to save us. And it's an ironic thing because the righteousness of God is there to punish us, right? It, it's, it's righteous for God to punish sinners. And yet we appeal to the righteousness of God to save us because he has promised to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son to die for our sins. He said anyone who believes will be saved. And so now God would be wrong for not saving. And so that righteousness works both ways. Look at verse 17. Here he appeals not to the righteousness of God. In verse 17 he appeals to God's name. So now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine, which means delight in your desolate sanctuary. Turn your face of anger towards your sanctuary and shine. The, the idea is that when someone is happy and joyful and delighting, there's a glow on their face. And so look with a glow upon your city and your desolate sanctuary. In verse 18, Daniel appeals to something else. He appeals to God's great compassion. In verse 18, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of our righteousnesses or any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. It's amazing that in the light of all the destruction that has taken place, Daniel still knows that God is a God of great compassion. What, what a contradiction for most people. How can a God who makes people eat their own offspring be called a God of great compassion? But he is. He's both of those things. So he's asking God to act in accordance with his great compassion. And finally, in verse 19, Stephen Miller, the commentator, says that the prayer reaches a passionate crescendo as the prophet concludes with short staccato-like sentences reflecting the emotion that fills his heart. And again in verse 19, he appeals, God, for your own sake, do not delay. Because, because why, why, what does this have to do with God's sake? For this reason, 
because your, your city and your people are called by your name. Your name is bound up with the people, the city, and this sanctuary. So Daniel appeals to God to, for God to act on these three bases, on the grounds of God's righteousness to fulfill his promise, on the grounds of God's mercy and compassion, that God, you're a gracious and compassionate God, look upon us with kindness. And for the sake of his name, he appeals for God to act and to restore. Daniel understands that all that has happened has happened in the light of the covenant. Daniel is not asking God to set aside the covenant. Daniel's not saying, okay, God, it's time now to forget about Moses and the law of Moses. But Daniel is asking God to fulfill his covenant, considering that there is more going on than just their sin and the punishment at Mount Sinai. There is more to you than that. There is more to our relationship than that. There is more to your relationship with Israel than just Sinai and wrath against sin. Amen? This understanding of the covenant is so important. It is the key to the book of Daniel, and I would even say it's the key to the entire Bible. It is the spine, it is the fiber, it is the rebar of the theology of Scripture. This understanding of God's promises and his covenants that he made to Israel. And God loves it when we understand this. And I'd like to just look ahead here to verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. And here's what he says of Daniel. God tells Daniel, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. And the Hebrew word is chamad. It's a very intimate word. Highly esteemed doesn't really do it justice. God, he, God says to Daniel, you are greatly desired. That's what chamad means. God desires you greatly, Daniel. You are heaven's delight. These are all good translations of Hamad. You are precious to God. You are a treasure to God. This is what Daniel is to God. Hamad. Precious treasure, delight, a desire, a saint. And why do you think that is? Why is Daniel a delight? Is it because Daniel prays a lot? Why is Daniel Hamad? Because he has faith, and that faith has an object. And the object of that faith is the truth that Daniel shows that he understands in this prayer. That Daniel understands the things of God. He understands the sin of the people. He understands the unrighteousness of himself and others. He understands the compassion of God the righteousness of God, the salvation of God, and the name of God. All these things that he prayed about, Daniel understands, Daniel believes in, as Alan said, and this is why Daniel is chamad to God. And so are you, brothers and sisters, if you understand these things. If you understand, un if you understand righteousness, and you understand you are unrighteous, and you understand that you deserve wrath, but you can, you know God, and you can look to God in faith, and you can appeal to something greater in God than just punishments that come upon us for our sin. When you know his son, Jesus Christ, and put your faith in him, you understand 
what God understands about sin and righteousness and judgment. And God can say, Aaron, Josiah, Wendy, you are Hamad to me. You are a precious treasure, heaven's delight, and greatly desired. This is what God thinks of you if you're a Christian. This is what God thought of Daniel, and for the same reason that he thinks it of you. Do you think that God thinks that about you? Well, he does. And now in closing, what makes a true confession before God? Like Israel, each one of us needs to be made right with God, and we're made right with God through confession. As the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want to be made right with God, if you are right with God, it's because you have done this. If you want to be made right with God, then listen carefully because this is what makes a person right with God. It involves a confession. And this, a true confession involves the things that we saw here in Daniel's confession. First of all, you confess that you have sinned against God. You've missed the mark. You've twisted what is right. And you don't have an excuse. You're bad. You're rebellious. You haven't listened. It's not because you listened and failed. It's because you didn't listen. And you've sinned. And you confess that you are wrong. If, we, if you were to be judged by God in a courtroom, that you would be found guilty and God would be found to have no guilt. God would be found to be righteous in all that he's done. And secondly, not only do you confess that you are wrong and you have sinned against God, but you confess that God is righteous in the punishment that he prescribes for sinners. I think that you can't have a true confession of sin unless you also confess that the punishment is fitting. Otherwise, you could say, I've sinned, and most people in the world will confess they've sinned, but they don't confess that what they deserve is the wrath of God and to be cast aside and to be separated from God for all eternity. They don't, they don't believe that. I've sinned, but I'm not that bad, and I don't deserve, certainly, hell and be rejected by God, right? And when you, when you reject the punishment, you're, you're essentially rejecting what sin is. You're not really confessing your sin. So a true confession, what John says, well, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, is to acknowledge before your God you have sinned and what you deserve is the punishment that he has prescribed. And only then when you do that are you really ready to understand and to receive the mercy of God. Understand, brothers and sisters, that God is greatly compassionate for sinners who have sinned and done badly and who deserve hell and eternal punishment. God is greatly compassionate towards sinners. The, the problem is people are afraid to admit their sin and that they deserve punishment because they are afraid God will then just usher them into hell. But the reality is, is God is greatly compassionate for you and he promises to save you if you confess before him and if you look to him for mercy and grace. God can righteously save you because he sent his son, as we say, as we, as we preach every Sunday, God can righteously save you because Jesus Christ, his son, came to die for our sins and it's through the blood of Christ that we are cleansed from our sins and are able 
to stand before him forgiven. And we don't need to appeal for God to act here like Daniel did because Daniel's situation was different. He's saying, God, I know you're a merciful, compassionate God, so please act. As, as believers in Christ, it is for us to believe now that God has acted because of his mercy, he has acted, and God is the one who's telling you to believe now. God is saying, turn your ear to me. Open your eyes, O sinner, and see what I have done, and hear of my great mercy, and put your trust in me. And if you do, you are declared righteous in God's court, and you will not be put to open shame, ever. You will not be ashamed. The Bible tells us that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. His name is therefore at stake when you put your faith in him. He will save you or else his name and his reputation would perish. But if you want God to be merciful to you, if you want God to save you, if you want God to listen to you, oh God, hear my cry and save me, you must give ear to him and open your ears and turn from your perversity of thinking and give attention to his truth. Have you done that? If you haven't, today is the best day for you to do it. And if you have, rejoice, dear brothers and sisters, who have given heed to the truth of God, because just like Daniel, you are to God, Hamad, heaven's delight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are truly great and awesome and fearful for your wrath and the punishments which you have prescribed for sinners are real. And you will fulfill your word to the letter. You will show the world that you are righteous in all things that you do and that we truly deserve punishment for our sins and the punishment that you have prescribed. Help us to remember that you are a fearful God who is not to be messed with. And God, thank you that you are a merciful and compassionate God for great sinners. Thank you for the salvation that you have for all sinners, that you extend to them in your Son. Lord, please give us deeper understanding into all of these things as we continue our study of Daniel. Help us to be in tune with the framework and the background that's behind these, these passages that we might rejoice not just in uh, cold, hard chronologies and events, Lord, but that we might rejoice in your great salvation for sinners. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.